Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, the bulk of our text will come from, from this chapter this morning. It's good to see everyone. We appreciate you being here on this Lord's Day. We have a great number of visitors with us this morning. You are our welcome guest. We hope that you will find in us a congregation that stands for the truth, a congregation that seeks to serve God as we have the pattern that we find in the New Testament. That is our charge, that is our duty, that is our honor to be able to do such. And we pray and, uh, that, that we are indeed holding to that pattern and that we are glorifying God in our worship to Him on this day. I want to talk this morning about something that we find here in Romans chapter 11, and that is the idea that there are two sides to God. There is a kind side and there is a severe side. And Paul talks about this in, in here in this passage in, in verse 22 when he talks about the kindness and severity of God. The God that we serve, the God that we know, the God that has revealed himself to us, has revealed both of these sides to us. And we're going to talk in a little bit more detail about each one of those sides of him as we go along. But I, for the context and for... For um, the bulk of our time together, I want to look at chapter 11 and see this argument that Paul lays out. I had a good discussion Wednesday night uh, with my brother Jonathan. Sometimes hard for me to call him a brother. He's like a son to me and easily young enough to be my son. Uh, I had a good discussion with Jonathan about, you know, Scripture doesn't just um, try to lead us down a primrose path. Scripture leads us to points logically, and it tells us about God. It tells us in, an, in a reasoned an argument about God. And so when you see things like how beautiful this language is that Paul lays out here in chapter 11, it's important to understand the context, and it's important to look at it and appreciate the overall point that he's trying to make. So we're going to look at this in a little bit in depth and then come back to the idea about this kindness and severity of God. So if you're there in Romans chapter 11, let's read a little bit. We're not going to read every verse, but we are going to look at uh, the, the context and, and, and the different sections here that I've broken it down in Romans chapter 11. So let's just read a little bit to get the flavor here. Chapter 11 begins, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And again, so we'll stop right there. This is a rhetorical kind of question. This is a way in which logic is laid out by asking rhetorical questions. And of course, the answer is, may it never be. God has not rejected his people. No, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel... Lord, they have killed the prophets and they've torn down thy altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is it, the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the, kneel, bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So the first question here and the first points that we can make is obviously God has not rejected Israel. And he goes on to talk about um, how, of course, he has not rejected his people. But he's, in this argument, he's going to lay out what they have done to him. 
But he says, I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He gives his qualifications, his resume very quickly, if you will, about who he is. And he says, God's not rejected me. Rather, we reject God when we sin against him, which is the point that he'll make here as he, as he goes through. But he, he points to Elijah in the time of Elijah when Elijah stands before God and says, they, they've killed all the prophets and they're seeking after me for my life. And God's answer to him is, there's still 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There still is a remnant that, that remains that are, that are true to me and have not given over into idolatry. And that's the point that he makes. That even though the, the times here and what we see is the transitioning out of the old law and into the new law, the Jews who have left the old law and have transitioned in, into the law of Christ, those are the ones who are believers. Those are the ones who make that connection and make the change. That's the remnant. But sadly, there are still some that are trapped in this, the, the ideology that they hold on to of the old law, not realizing that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the old law. And now it's time for them to come under the law of Christ. And there's a remnant that still remains. It says there, verse 6, But if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace... It is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You see, there's a, there's a remnant that's going to be saved because they realize that God's grace has given them Jesus Christ. Not saved by the letter of the law, but saved by righteousness. Saved by belief in God. That's the remnant that always has been. It's always those who believe in God and have faith in God are the ones who he saves. As he goes on, beginning in verse 11, he starts to lay out the idea here about how salvation has come to the Gentiles. And it has come to them through Israel's sin. Read with me here, beginning in verse 11. It says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Again, speaking about Israel, it says, May it never be, but by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. See, the whole nation of Israel hasn't fallen, but there's still that remnant. There's still those that believe in God, and they believe in such a manner as to understand that God can change the law. He can fulfill the law of Moses and at the same time bring in the law of Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. That remnant is there because of God's gracious gift, because they believe in God. But it is through Israel's sin that this has all taken place because they would not keep the law, because God knew that the time under the law of Moses was finite. The time has come for the law of Christ. And it is because of Israel's inability to keep the law. It's also this idea of, uh, of God's gardening. I love the, the analogy here that, that Paul uses. Read with me here, beginning in verse 15. It says, If their rejection be reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first place a piece of dough be holy, then the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. So he begins this idea, this analogy of a tree. With well, the root and branches. The root is, is it can be thought of as, as God, the Word of God. 
Those things that are holy, that which God provides, the root. And then the branches are his children. Verse uh, 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and that's a reference into breaking off the, 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 the Jews, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker of them which the, uh, the rich root of the olive tree. So those grafted in are those who come under the law of Christ. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. See, in this analogy, God is the same. God is the root. There's different sets of branches here that he's talking about. He's talking about first the native branches, which were the children of God. And he's talking about these wild branches that were grafted in. Those are those who were, who were not Jews. Those are the Gentiles who came to know Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Those are the ones who have been grafted in. And it's, salvation has come to the Gentiles because of this. Because of the, the plan here that, that, that is being laid out. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. See, there it is again. They were broken off for their unbelief. It wasn't because God abandoned them. It was because they abandoned God. And as such, they were broken off. Stand firm in your faith. But you stand firm in your faith in the middle of verse 20. Do not be conceited, but what? But fear. Why? Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You see, that there's the native tree with its root and its native branches, and God is pruning them. He's gardening. He's tearing off those branches that are for their unbelief, those who have fallen away from God. And what is he doing? He's grafting in those who believe in God. And in this example, this is the Gentiles, those who have come to know God through the preaching of the gospel. And then verse 22, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. So here we are, the two sides of God that, that Paul puts forth. To those who fell, severity. To those branches that he cut off, that was severe. But to you, God's kindness. To you who are being grafted in, you who are uh, accepting the gospel and, and appreciating what God has done for you, it's kindness to you. But, he says, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So this idea that some in the religious world teach and preach that you're once saved, you're always saved. Scripture speaks very specifically against that. Scripture says that, in Paul's analogy here, those ones that are grafted in, you think you're, you're made? Well, guess what? If you fall away, if you don't believe, if your unbelief becomes such as that of, the, of those Jews who didn't believe any longer, guess what? God's going to break you off too. That's the gardening that we're talking about. But there is a provision made here at the end of this passage, verse 23 beginning. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about those, those under the old law who have, who have come under the law of Christ. It says they will be grafted in if they, if, they, uh, if they do not continue in their unbelief. 
If they believe in Jesus Christ, if they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Where you were cut off, for if you were cut off from what by nature a wild olive tree were grafted uh, contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? You know, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16 to 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. God's plan was that his children, the children of Israel, the Jews, would be converted first. So provisions have been made for them. And he says they are welcome. If you read throughout the rest of the book of Romans and understand that God is welcoming his children to come under the law of Christ. But they have to leave behind the old law. The old law has been fulfilled. So the provisions are there made for that native tree, for, it, for them to be grafted back into that tree. Verses 25 through 32 speak of salvation still for Israel. He introduced it here just now. He goes on to further explain that a little bit. In verse 25 he says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The mystery has been revealed. Paul is telling us about it. This is it. There was a time that the hardness of Israel was going to be there, that when they were not paying attention to what uh, the spirit of the law, they were paying attention to the letter of the law to a fault. So much that the Pharisees were, were binding things on them that shouldn't be bound they were missing the spirit of the law. And so, um, Paul is telling me, I don't want you to be unaware of this, brethren. That this, this had to happen. This, this timing, everything that has transpired, this had to happen. And God uses the disobedience of the, of the Jews to bring the Gentiles into the fold. But guess what else he's going to do? He's going to use the disobedience of the Gentiles to bring the Jews back into the fold. Read with me. Verse 28, for from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as once you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. These also have now been disobedient in order that you, because of the mercy shown to you, you may also be shown mercy, for God has shut up all disobedience that he might show mercy to all. See, because of the Jews' disobedience, the Gentiles were, were let in. And then when the Gentiles reject Christ, there's an opportunity for the Jews to be grafted back in. And that's what he means when he says there in verse 32, for God has shut up in disobedience, uh, shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. You see, it's, it's not God's plan under the law of Christ to exclude the Jews. Nor is it his plan to exclude the Gentiles. Rather, it is his plan to unite them both under Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is what he says next in verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. As human beings, could we put a plan like that together and carry that from the, from the very beginning? God knew what he had to do to redeem man 
from his sin. And to have that carry out, all the things that happen are not circumstance. It's God's providence that led the patriarchs and led the children of Israel out of Egypt, Egyptian bondage, into the promised land. They fell away. They were scattered. They come back together for a time. And then at the right time, the fullness of time, as Paul talks about in Galatians, Jesus Christ came. All that is because of God's providence. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God. Only he could pull off a plan like that. Only he could do that. This was his plan all along. He says there, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or become his counsel? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, who is it that can know the mind of God? No one. No one can know the mind of God. No one can understand the mind of God unless he reveals it to us. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's revealing to us this mystery. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All things flow from, through, and to him. It's not just a matter of happenstance and things just kind of playing out in the world that, that man's going to be redeemed from his sins. It was God's plan all along for his son to come to earth and to die on the cross for our sins. And all the events that we read about in scripture, all of that points to that. And then the accounts of Jesus's ministry and the accounts of him going to the cross and all the prophecy that is fulfilled, all that is part of God's plan. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The mystery of all that is being revealed to us. How God is able to do that. Glory forever. Amen. Only God can do something like that. Only God has the power to save man from his sin through the death of his own son. I appreciate Devin's comments around the table this morning about us coming together to remember that death and to enjoy the fellowship that we have one with another in knowing that we are participating and sharing in this communion to remember the death of our Lord. But think about this also. Think about at what high price sin was paid. It was not the blood of bulls and goats. It was not the blood, it was not the offering, the burnt offerings or, or any of the offerings under the under the old law, yes, those offerings were made, and yes, they were atonement for sin. But it took the precious blood of the only Son of the Father to put away sin. And that's what we come together on the first day of the week to remember. Glory forever. Amen. I want to talk, in the time we have remaining, this idea about the kindness and severity of God. Let's look at a few things, and obviously, we're not going to have time to talk about all the kindness of God, but I want to talk about a few things in context of what we've been talking about. First of all, let's understand this, that God created a good world for us. You go back and look at the creation story. In six days, he created all things that are in the universe, and on that sixth day, you remember what was said about it, he said that things that he had created, they were good. He created a good world for for us to live in. It was a good world. It was made by hand, spoken into existence by God, 
our Father, God the Creator. He has always provided for His people. So as He provided this world for us to live, then as these different eras of, of Bible history, shall we say, the patriarchs, the, the law of Moses, the Israelites, and the Christians, He's always provided for His people. Think of all the things that He provided uh, for Abraham and his, and his offspring. And for the Jews, as they are um, coming out of Egypt and wandering um, in the wilderness and all the things that he provided for them. And then think of what he has provided for us as Christians. And under that, in Christ, God has expressed his ultimate kindness. In that, we have the ability to be, ability to be saved from our sins. And we have the ability to live a life eternally in the presence of our Creator. That's the ultimate expression of God's kindness. On the other side of this is the severity. It was man's actions that separated him from God. It wasn't God that separated Adam and Eve from himself. It was Adam and Eve's actions that separated them from God. Because they ate of that fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because they did that, they separated themselves from God, and that spiritual death entered the world. And as such, he determined the consequences. There's severe punishment because of what they did. The man would have to eat by the sweat of his brow. The, the woman would, be, would have labor or have pains in childbirth. They were going to be kicked out of the garden. That's the severity. Kindness was given in them the garden. The severity is kicking them out of it when they transgressed his will. As he has always provided for his people, he always punishes the unrighteous. We see punishment. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that first massive punishment of everyone in the world except eight souls. So if we think... We looked at our Bible class this morning, 2 Peter 3. Those who scoff and say, well, the world is just the same as, as since the beginning. Peter says, don't you remember when God destroyed the whole earth with a flood? That's severity. It says there that they're, the, the people of the world at that time, in the time of Noah, their minds were constantly on evil. It permeated their thoughts. And so God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Except you, Noah your sons and their wives. I'm going to preserve you. And we're going to repopulate the earth starting with you. That's severity. Just as God in Christ has expressed his ultimate kindness through Jesus Christ, understand this, that unbelief in Christ results in ultimate severity. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. You see, if we reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should expect punishment. God is a very kind God. He's given us a good earth to live in. He's always provided for his children, even when they were stubborn and, and turned against him in every way. He punished them as, as was appropriate, but he always maintained that remnant. 
And that's what Paul's talking about here throughout chapter 11. There's always those who are righteous and those who will be grafted into the tree. But if you're not, if you fall away because of your unbelief, if you reject what God has put before you, guess what? The gardener is there to prune those branches. And that ultimate severity of God is, is, to, is to die and our soul be in torment forever away from the presence of God. And that's why the Hebrew writer uses that terminology, terrifying expectation of judgment. We often think in the world is quick to talk about the kindness of God, especially in the religious world. They'll talk about all the good things about God and, and the love of God and, 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 and that we can all get to heaven. We might just get there by different means. Scripture says we have to follow what God has told us and be righteous in his eyes according to his plan. That's how we make it to heaven. And the religious world, sadly, doesn't spend much time on this side talking about severity, talking about what happens when we reject God's plan. I'll put forth this to you, to please accept God's kindness. The other side of him, as we've demonstrated here briefly, is severe when we're in rejection of, of him. But he's offered us such kindness. He's extended such kindness to us through offering his only son to be put to death at the hands of men. What a terrible price had to be paid for sin. And God was willing to do that. What does he ask of you? He asks you to believe in that. He asks you to believe in him. He asks you to make a change in your life, understanding that I can't live in this world of sin. I can't go, no longer go down this path of sin. I have to turn back and turn to God. And Paul speaks in Acts chapter 17 that God has made us in such a way that we would grope for God. And he is never far from each one of us. That's kindness. That's kindness that he wants us to be saved. So if we recognize that and turn from our sin and, and, and confess that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And in that confession, what we're doing is we're, we're recognizing the authority given to Jesus Christ. The authority given from the Father to the Son. And recognizing that it is under Jesus Christ and Him alone where salvation lies. If you do those things, you are a candidate for baptism. Because baptism is the culmination of those things. It's when you submit to God, when you render obedience to God, and realize that God has said, if you are to that point, and you, and you believe in what you have heard, and you have faith in that, and you have turned from your life of sin, and you recognize and acknowledge who Jesus Christ is, what you have left to do is to render to the waters of baptism. I didn't make those rules. God made those rules. So many in the religious world try to explain away baptism. That baptism is not necessary for salvation. 
Scripture says otherwise. Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's hard for me to explain that away. It's hard for me to explain that baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. I don't read that in Scripture. I read that baptism saves me. Not the water. Not going underwater as some kind of magical sign. It's a, it's a realization and an acknowledgement that I am rendering obedience to God. That's how we become into the body of our Lord. What kindness. What kindness it is for God to have such a beautiful plan. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to become one through that simple plan. And if as a child of God, you are walking that line, maybe you've stepped over that line and living in sin. There's the other side of God that you need to be aware of. And that's the severe side of God. Or that expectation, that terrifying expectation of judgment lies. Make your life right. If you need the prayers of the congregation, we can help you by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.